It's no secret that writing can be lonely work, but does it really have to be? Whether you're full-time, part-time, or just starting out, you'll get insights into the tricks, tips, and production habits of writers from every level of the biz. From best-selling authors to those launching their first novels, you're sure to be in the company of friends as we encourage great writers to divulge and share their secrets. This is The Great Writer Share Podcast with your host, best-selling author, Daniel Wilcox. Hello and welcome to the Great Writer Share podcast with me, Daniel Wilcox, where every week I have made it my mission to speak to some of the most successful, generous and wise writers the business has to offer in order to pull out the tips, tricks and strategies they use to create content and make the world an all round better place. Um, you might hear today that in this intro, I particularly, I have a bit of a sore throat. I've just come back from a five day retreat out in Edinburgh for the 20 Books Edinburgh Conference Um which links in very, very nicely to today's guest, Michael Anderley, who we'll get to in a second. But um, I just wanted to put a little shout out because I'm sure I'll be speaking to some of the people that I've met away on that weekend soon on this podcast. Because I think one thing that can't be underestimated and one thing that I've definitely discovered is writers events in real person are are, are pretty incredible. I met a lot of cool people this week. Um, it was essentially uh, Thursday and Friday were just writing days in which... I think 130 writers were together in a little castle in Scotland um, and we're just writing and just sitting in a room, just writing, doing the work, which is kind of what everyone here is. That's exactly what we're here to do. Then Saturday and Sunday were the conference itself. Um, and Michael Anderley himself did a keynote. He had all of his collaborators there. He had Craig Martell. Um, it was just it was just a big weekend full of a lot of cool names. And, and what was nice about it was the fact that it was all about independent publishing which is my world. And I know that this podcast isn't strictly independent publishing, but it's something that is very close to my heart. And I will have traditional publishers on to here because I'm massively interested in that arena. Um, but I just wanted to say that for anyone who's ever thought about going to a live event, a conference, um, a workshop, um, you're sat at home, you're thinking, I'm writing, it's lonely work. And it is lonely work. And it says it in the intro. That's, that's deliberately why I put that in the intro. Um, and part of the reason I do this podcast is to bring other writers into your ears, uh, into your earballs. And, uh, also, so I can connect with other writers and, and, and network. And I think the more that we share and the more that we kind of do together, um, the more successful we will all be. Which leads me nicely on to uh, today's guest, as mentioned, is Michael Anderley. Uh, I'm going to go into a big introduction when I jump into the inter interview. And um, you'll notice that my throat isn't as sore in the, in the full interview because this was recorded last week. Uh, ahead of of the weekend itself because there would be no way that I'd lock down Michael. Michael's a very busy man. Um, but in this interview, we cover things like what was Michael's maximum word count in one day, how collaboration can maximize your success as an author and a publisher, and the future of independent publishing. Now, Michael's a really good example to follow because he's really paving the way for independent publishers. Um, he's taken the journey from creating a universe that fans absolutely love. He's built that on collaboration. And now he's definitely in the arena of being a publisher with his company, LMBPN. And uh, yeah, we really get into some cool stuff in this interview. And, and, and as someone that's worked with Michael directly before, it's it's nice to have the chance to sit down and kind of pick his brains on a couple of questions that, that I've had burning for a long while. Um, and if you want to find out more, and this is mentioned a bit later, but if you do, do want to find out a bit more about Michael's earlier journey, then do check out the Story Studio. Um, I believe it was episode around 36, 37, potentially. Um in which me and Luke, last week's guest, sat down and chatted to Michael. Uh, it was about a year and a half ago about everything he was doing then, and the the leaps and the jumps that he's gone in that time are are absolutely astounding. So this will this will definitely be a good one to to plug into and listen. But before we go into the main section, I'd like to just do a quick shout out to this week's patrons, who we now have our first official patron um, to the Great Writer Share podcast, which is David Hines. So thank you very much, David. Appreciate you having it on board. And uh, yeah, David's now currently in our special community Slack group in which he's he's picking the brains of the Hawk and Cleaver authors. He's taking advantage of all the bonuses that are on offer. Um, so he'll get his episodes early. He'll have access to a monthly giveaway based on the stuff of the authors that have come on the, the month before. Um, so yeah, if you want to get exclusive bonus access to everything that we have on board there, just check out www.patreon.com forward slash great writers share. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com great writers plural share and yeah just just hop on board and we'll see you on the other side but right now we're going to get straight into the interview with the publishing giant 
Mr. Michael Anderley. Michael Anderley is the Amazon best-selling author of over 27 series, four story universes, and 160 audiobooks, of which all of these have been published by his independent publishing company, LMBPN, in the last three years. His leading series, The Cathirian Gambit, houses almost 200 books with collaborations from a multitude of best-selling and leading independent authors and spans across several genres, including science fiction, space opera, fantasy, and post-apocalypse. His Facebook group, 20 Books to 50K, is now one of the leading pages for independent writers to share knowledge and ask questions, with the group posting over 32,000 members at the time of recording. On top of running a Smash House independent publishing company, Michael also finds time to appear and host at events and conferences across the globe, and is gracious enough to spare a small chunk of his very valuable time to join me on this podcast and answer a few of my own burning questions. Michael, welcome to the show. Hey, Dan, how are you doing? I appreciate the welcome or enjoy being back. Yes. Uh, yeah, we were just saying before we hit record, it's been two years since we last spoke. So um, I actually think the introduction we gave you last time was impressive. But then obviously in the two years that have passed, those numbers have jumped up massively from where you were at that point. Yeah, they really have. I mean, it's been a wild ride. There's a lot of things and, and not, none of this could have been done without the massive amount of collaborators and other people that you know work within the sphere of indie. So, you know, it's not just me by any stretch of the imagination. And um, but it's it's been great. It's been a wonderful three years. You've got a massive team behind you. I mean, just to dive straight in. So, I mean, you've got a million and one things going on with your business right now. You're looking at the audiobooks. You've obviously, like you say, collaborating with loads and loads of people. But it hasn't always been like this. At one point, you were just a single author writing, doing your business. Mm-hmm. What have you found along the way have been your key milestones along the journey that have allowed the growth that you've achieved so far? So starting from day one as an author to now, are there any sort of particular moments where you can sort of look at and go, that changed everything and built to where you're going? Certainly kind of in years, I can look at it. So um, in order to be able to answer the question, I think I need to lay a couple, little bit of a foundation and understand that inside of indie publishing overall, I believe that um, that there are different facets or different types of roles that are within it that people need to accomplish. And I think Warner Ross had something recently on this herself. But you have the individuals who are indie authors, and they're really just they're authors, and they put stuff up on Amazon, and their goal there is to get it out, and they're not necessarily business-minded. Now, an indie author who just wants to write but also wants to worry about business but doesn't have a, either a desire to do it should team up with someone that wants to be an indie publisher. Then you have those that love the full creative control. They write their books. They make sure all the editing is exactly the way that they want it. They focus on the artwork. They get the artwork done. They get the jackets done. They do the promotion. They learn BookBub ads. They learn Amazon ads. They learn Facebook ads. They're they're the whole team. And then you have those that are indie publishers who might have started with writing. Frankly, they might not have. Maybe they source the books. Maybe they actually you know, do a little bit more of a traditional model where they get a contract going between the author and so on. And so you have the indie publishers. Uh, LMBPN has grown into a full publishing company. When I was originally the only person doing it, I had to worry about it all. As I matured and had the income to do it, I started outsourcing those areas of either I had no desire to do it, I knew that I wasn't good at it. And so, you know, I started exchanging money for time. And then that, that time that I acquired by exchanging the money for it, I either put back into writing or I started working collaborations with other people to increase the volume because right now inside of indie publishing, one of the ways, not the only way, but one of the ways that you move up the ladder is that you publish more often. You use the the algorithms. Now, I'm typically talking about Amazon because while we're getting into some wide areas in LMBPN, we're not there yet. We don't can't speak with any authority on wide whatsoever. So I can only speak with authority on the Amazon efforts that we've done. And now we've, you know, we've got 600 titles. We've got almost 200 audiobooks. We've been around the block a little bit. So as I looked at what was selling and what wasn't selling in the company, I could find out what was I good at. And so I started piecing that together and looking at, okay, I'm really good at creating characters that people care about, about creating something unique that is different enough that people go, oh, well, that's something I like. Let's say it's urban fantasy, but I like the twist you put on it. So I can create those better. My writing, mm, not necessarily always the best. And so with collaborations, 
whether that's a true collaboration, someone is writing this stuff, whether I do a work for hire, you know, some people are like, what are you talking about? You know, work for hire. And technically you could say it's ghostwriting, but also work for hire could be for pen names. And so it's, you know, under my control of what's going on and what's changed. And there were various reasons for doing that. One of which is in our first year of collaboration, 2017, uh, LMBPN paid out over half a million dollars in collaboration royalties, which is a fantastic number. I'm really proud of it. But the headaches some of the collaborations did, I, I never wanted to do again. And so if there was, let's say that I had a, an idea and a collaborator didn't agree with that idea, if they're investing their time and effort to write the words, I owe it to them to negotiate on where the creative control should go. At least that's what was my thinking. In some cases, I don't want to. Now, I can't physically write all of these books. What are my options? That led me down to just saying, you know what? I'll pay someone to write these words with you know, my management on top of it, my creative on top of it. And then uh, a lot of the Michael Todd books are that way. So we had that. So that was one way where I abstracted out the piece that I felt I did best, create characters, create worlds, create ideas and concepts, write the beats, and then where I could plug in someone that could potentially either do it much faster than myself or better. And that was on the writing part. And then, of course, we had the editing. If anyone knows my history, knows my story, I became very successful with no true editing, no editor in the process. Um, I certainly tried to fix the no editing role being filled early in my career, and that had its own mishaps. But the editing role, uh, we finally found somebody and uh, fulfilled that. And for a long time, it was fans doing it. So in a lot of cases, you could say that was one way that I leveled up where the fans were helping me do some of these roles that I couldn't, I couldn't find someone to do them for me or they didn't do it the way I liked it. And, um, and we filled it. So once again, I wasn't self-editing. I wasn't waiting on an editor's timelines like, Hey, I can fit your book in, you know, today we're talking, it's July 12th. I'll get your book in October 7th. I'm like, no, mm -hmm. the book's getting finished. It's going out. And so I never took, the constraints of the industry as they were known as my constraints. And so that's a mindset I think that people can learn from mm -hmm. and just doubt everything, you know, question it, whether or not it's true. And that causes some people consternation, but it's been very successful for us. Yeah, um, I, think, I think it's a very interesting uh, angle to approach it from, because like you say, you've got <clears throat> dozens and dozens of people or hundreds of people who are taking that traditional approach and sometimes all it takes is one person to do something different to just test it a bit and to just change shake the system up enough that it, it it works and people like it i mean the you mentioned there about having fans edit your work how did you mm -hmm. go about sourcing those fans and i mean personally for myself i know that i would struggle relinquishing that control over to fans itself because there's a part of my my head that always says people say go down the traditional route source out your your proper editors look down um and do your research whereas obviously like you say you're talking about speed here but at the same time how do you maintain that quality at the same time as as picking these people who like you say started as fans well that's we, in fact we were talking about this this morning with both Krishan keller hannah and um others i think that there's a uh, certainly for me when when someone said editor right there's a differentiation sometimes. The editor or editing is, is a blanket word that could mean proofreading. You know, do we have two of these in or those in the words? Do we double it up? Did we misspell something? Blah, blah, blah. So we have proofreading. We have line editing where this line could be moved around and flow better. Then we have developmental editing where they're looking at your story and then helping you understand what they feel. And I think this is really important because everything in stories on the fiction side is incredibly subjective. And it, it wasn't until I made my first million dollars in income that at, at that point, I put a line in the sand and said, I'm right. <laughs> now, whether or not someone wants to argue, that's fine, but they need to put their million dollars that they've made personally up and say, okay, we're, you know, we got something. And I'm like, well, I'm right for my fans. They could be absolutely right for a different set of fans. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So we had something happen recently where we know that an editor that was doing an incredibly good job 
in our core genres realized that they weren't knowledgeable about a very different genre and they had to rethink their assertion because that other genre purposely didn't speak correctly. And unless they had a rethink of that, they would have edited it to normal editing. And so, you know, Craig and I will talk about this tomorrow, in fact, but editing itself, I think, is one of the, the most vociferous and arguable areas <laughs> of publishing. <laughs> Absolutely. So, yeah. Um, no, I, I completely agree. It's, like I said, it's difficult to try and please everyone and obviously everyone even the best authors will get negative reviews based off people that haven't found it so it's about trying to hit that tribe find the people that your book is trying to speak to and i mean you've got an entire pool of people that follow you from book to book um and i know that sort of over the last year or two you've been moving away your your success came from the catherian gambit universe you had your big fan mm -hmm. pool there and you're now migrating them over into other genres or sort of uh, introducing them to other genres as you as you widen what you do have you found there have been any, um, what are the sort of pros and cons of, of taking the existing audience and bringing them over? Have you found any sort of negative feedback? Have people liked what you've been doing? It's interesting. Um, only recently have we had something that's that was really relevant. Now, to go back to the original, Cartherian Gambit moved a core universe into, which was, you know, kind of vampires in space, as someone colloquially will put it, <laughs> but uh, paranormal in space, right? Uh, or paranormal sci-fi would be the best way of explaining it. And we moved it into post-apocalyptic magical or post-apocalyptic fantasy. You know, we've moved it into multiple different genres, urban fantasy, fantasy, and gone back and forth. But in a way, those are at least cousins of each other. Um, when I wrote Cartherian Gambit, my original intent was people who pay money vote. People who don't pay money don't get a voice in what's going on. So if I, and I recently kind of lost that mentality because for so many years, we've had really high reviewed books. And so I stayed out of what's called the game lit or lit RPG area. And um, for, for just as like, I didn't understand it, didn't go on it. So I've read a bunch of lit RPG game lit stuff in, in the past last year, year and a half. I enjoy it. I understand the concepts of it. However, it is a very vociferous uh, area, and there's a lot of people who believe that they are the um, the thought police, I would say, to some degree. And we put out, I put out a series, and it had a fair amount of people arguing that this wasn't lit RPG, which is totally their opinion. It is fine. I don't have an issue with that. But what it, it showed me is I might have some reviews over here that are, are griping about it. And then I look in the bank account and it's an incredibly successful book. And I'm like, you know what's happening? You have people who want to sit there and yak about it. And then you have the people who are like, would you guys get on with your life? I'm reading this. <laughs> and so I realized again, once, you know, once more, look at the money, the reviews are there for who they help and they're who they don't. But frankly, it's not affecting my income. Yeah. You know, that book is a very good selling book. Fantastic. Um, trust. You mentioned earlier about collaboration and uh, a lot of people you're collaborating with. Obviously, within that, you said you've had sort of a couple of negative experience and trust plays a, a big role when it comes to collaborating with one person, let alone with so many people on the table. What are some of the biggest lessons you've learned while working with other authors, um, and not even just necessarily other authors, but the creatives that you work with, the editors, the artists? What are the sort of biggest lessons with collaborating with those? For me to understand their strengths and to play into them, me to understand them and not trying to change them to my vision, to the best of my ability. Human, so that doesn't always work. But if I'll ask the person about their background, if I'll ask about their life experience, if I'll ask about their personalities and then model the, the collaboration on that, then I have the best chance of minimizing my frustration, minimizing my expectation issues, minimizing um, the failure of it to be successful. How do you go about drawing those strengths out? Because I imagine you're a very busy man. You don't have a lot of time to donate here and there, but I can imagine you, you put in the time to invest into things that obviously will help benefit you and that are worth it. How do you pull out those strengths for people? How do you sort of talk to them and try and find out how, how they best work? Being forward on questions is one of them. 
you're right to the point that I don't get to talk to everybody. So sometimes, um, whether or not it's like our beta reading list or JIT reading list, you know, the fans that really understand the stories of LMBPN, I might ask for them to be queried on work. And if they basically give it all thumbs down, there's I don't need to take my time. It's just not going to work. We're not going to be able to work with this person because we can't benefit them. So it's not it's not good for either one of us. Um, if they give it a, a, a hearty thumbs up, well, then that's a go. But if they give us a huh, well, then I might have to get involved or I might have to take it to another level to find out, can I, uh, should I block the time to do something here? Um, what I've noticed, especially lately after, you know, I went about three years where I had two days off, I think, in the three years that I was working. And um, from that, I, you know, I certainly went through one stage, which was quote unquote classical burnout and just had to, you know, put the head down, type the words as negative as I was feeling during that situation. The book came out fine. But what I do recognize is just tired, emotionally tired. And in those states, I'm introverted from the standpoint of energy. And, you know, I, I pull back. I'm not on Facebook very much anymore. I used to be on it a whole lot. I'm, you know, I don't talk with everybody. There's 217 members in our Slack group, <laughs> of which probably 120 are active to some degree. And I try to explain to people who are new because when they're new, I'm constantly work with them to bring them in to figure out what's going on. But we have a lot of people. We have a whole editing set of, you know, team. We have marketing people. We have operations people. So there's eight people that someone might have to work, have to work with. And then there's another 30 or 40 if they just say something in the general chat channel that people, you know, can comment on and whatever. So we have our own little uh, um, ecosystem, if you will, of relationships. If they're going well, I often will explain it's like it's kind of like a wheel. If you're not squeaking, I don't know to come check on you. <laughs> so please reach out to me. And I, you know, interrupted, interruptive relationship is kind of what it is at that point because I kind of need my own time and I, I steal it by just not um, reaching out proactively like I probably should have or should. Yeah, I've got to attest the uh, Slack group is is pretty crazy. I find it um, hilarious. I'll go on there after even just an hour or two, and so the channels will have dozens and dozens of different messages from different people over over different random things. It's it's quite fun to to see what everyone's putting together and to kind of get the atmosphere behind it. Um, and even <laughs> did, you, did you pay attention to the whole Australian death lizards and everything? No, I missed <laughs> that, that one, one the other day. <laughs> Oh my gosh. They, I, I don't remember. Was it Grace Snoke or, or maybe Amy Hawkins or something, you know, that Australia has all these deadly insects and, and spiders and yeah. everything. Something happened a couple of days ago and that meme got started and I came back and I'm like, Oh my good Lord, <laughs> what happened? And everybody is just cracking jokes about Australia yeah. <laughs> and that, and the fact that, you know, everything will kill you there. Well, that's what I mean. Like there's obviously so many distractions from Facebook, Slack, all different types of social media. So I actually, I don't dip on there as often as I probably should. Um, but like I say, you go into the general chat and there'll be 30, 40, 50 messages in the last couple of hours and then before that days and days of stuff it's hard to keep up um and i actually also want to attest to uh what you just said there about sometimes people needing to nudge you to get a response because mm -hmm. i found that obviously me and you work together uh, we've worked together on caitlin in the past um and mm -hmm. uh yeah i found that quite a, an interesting dynamic because you are a very very approachable guy and i think there's this um thing about you obviously because of your success that it's almost like some people are quite or I know I was to begin with quite um, reserved in terms of talking directly to you to approaching you. So I would sort of source and go around and ask different people about different questions, but um, it's, it's inspiring to have someone who is very, very open um, working with so many people, obviously your head's in a, a thousand different clouds, but we'll still put in that time just to say hi or to answer any questions. Is there a way that you've managed to kind of stay so grounded as you've, as you've grown, as you've had all these people, is this something that, um, you've always wanted to be because you do sometimes find people in situations similar to yourself, just kind of going cold fronted and not, not putting in that time to, to even talk to people. It's, um, it's a great question. I think part of it is my personality. I have, you know, whenever you do these, these personality tests and they tell you, Oh, you're this and you're that. And you're <laughs> yeah. these four letters. One time I did one um, quite a long time ago. And the response was I was an opposite, meaning I, uh, at one level, 
I was very creative and outgoing. And the other level, I was very introverted and, and whatever. So I have a strong desire to help people. But once I hit a certain point, I have no energy to do that. I don't want to talk to people. So it's a very <laughs> conflicted personality. So what happens here, of course, is when we're growing, and I've always wanted a very successful business, and now I have it. And now that that mountain is right here, I keep digging really hard to keep it going. So I, I see the opportunity. I believe that we're very similar to, you know, 1999, 2000, when IT companies were, you know, all the rage. If you're in this industry right now, it's a great time to be in here. But what happens in a new industry like this is eventually the, the small uh, go away, the, the really small go away. The, meet, the smaller people, you know, they keep going something, but then the bigger quote unquote of the small start building little teams. And we've seen that already happen, right? Yeah. Um, little indie publishing houses. And then the bigger indie publishing houses will eat a few smaller indie publishing houses, if you will. And that could be something similar to, um, you know, LNBPN is acquiring the complete backlist of a new genre from both. So we're going to acquire, you know, over 50 books. And it's going to take us nine months or a year or something to integrate all of this into our company. But it's a whole new genre line. We're, we're building something because of our existing infrastructure and their structure, infrastructure. We'll, you know, so LNBPN is only going to do this more and more often. So uh, we focus going around the world. But the industry as a whole will now have investors come in. And some of the the larger small companies are going to take income. They're just going to say, you know, this is a buyout. Um, a, a large example of this is recently from Sourcebooks. Sourcebooks has um, puts out about 400 books, and they're predominantly in the, the children's area, among others. And they've been in business like 20, 22 years. And I think it was Penguin Random House invested about $22 million into the company, I believe, for like 40%. Um, and those are both rumored numbers and actual numbers. The 40%, I don't think is questioned, but the 22 million is rumored. And so, you know, so that's PRH going into something as large as source books, but what would it take, you know, for a company to acquire a backlist of, of 20 books? That's, that's simple 20 books. Um, you know, it might not take very much, but LNBPN you know, we're building, we have a second company that we're taking off the ground strictly to um, to support efforts to rejuvenate existing um, IP and then turn it back around to the author. The way that this industry is working right now is beyond um, what's known in the past because the past had different modalities of distribution. They had different methods of running the structure for a book something I'd like to see what's in the past. So I've studied what's going on with TradPub to the best of my ability and the, the problems that I encounter. Here's an example of that. One of the reasons that uh, traditional publishers have said that they put a book out once a year has been, you know, bookshelf space. Well, we really haven't had a bookshelf space to speak of since, you know, Amazon kind of came forward back in the, you know, they were, I think they're 1995, but let's say it's 2010 with Kindle. But Everyone claims that, okay, we've had issues with because they're very paper-focused, and to a large degree they are. But I don't think um, that's the whole answer. As an editing exercise, traditional publishers require the, the writer to do most of the editing and get it as picture-perfect as they can before you know they do a, a final edit. And that has been asserted to me. Now, from a business perspective, if you have a year between books, that is a proper and perhaps practical method of doing editing. If your goal is is like ours, where the goal is to get out books and using the algorithms as they are, I would then question the business practice right there. I would say, okay, if we're looking at it that way and we see that there's a really great writer, so let me pitch it to you, Dan, and say, okay, you have a really great, smart writer. And yeah, there's some things that they need to learn, granted. But there are some other things that if they're little foibles, why would I kick it back to them to fix some commas and some misspellings, perhaps, instead of paying someone to proofread it or um, the fans helping us get that done? 
and allow that person to write the next story, which the fans want, which we want. <laughs> so there are reasons to change how the existing um, steps in the publishing process go. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I think that's a, it's a very good point. It's probably, and this is me completely assuming here, but I mean, Stephen King seems to put out a fair, a fair bit of work and his, his pace mm-hmm. is, um, self-confessed to be i believe between two and four thousand words i think he said he's slowing down now that obviously he's getting a bit older um but even so he's still bringing out a, a fair body of regular work and you can't really imagine publishers bouncing back stephen king to look for those those things so they're probably assuming they're investing a lot more into that kind of model just at a bit of a slower pace um but no i think i think it's actually right it's that it's that turnaround of focusing a lot more from the publishing company i guess looking inward at what they're releasing, who they're bringing on and kind of self-managing the brand and more about giving that power to the audience. Um, I know you've spoken a lot before about your whale readers and that was very much your target when you're bringing out the mm-hmm. Ethereum books is aiming at the people like yourself who used to read lots and lots of books and were just hungry for the next one. And like you say, if, mm-hmm. if that's what they're after, why not then try and bring as many of those as possible? Yeah, I mean, if I'm reading five books, six books in a weekend, which I've never and done, by the way. Next I think that's weekend, is, <laughs> uh, it hurts my neck now. I can't quite do that. Um, you sit there and you lay there. I mean, I, I, I've trust me. Um, except for the where we're at right now, we don't have a lot of space in this condo. But you know, I'm looking for that perfect, that perfect um, chaise lounge mm. that allow me to read forever <laughs> and not hurt my neck or anything. I, I'm going to be really excited about that. And uh, maybe when the house is done in Cabo, I'll be able to find one and put it outside yeah. and, and just read again. <laughs> um, but some of the things that you asked about, you know, kind of the, the Tim Ferriss four-hour work week. Mm. And where I was going a little bit early in the discussion was related to the fact of understanding what do I do best. And that's not just editing. That's the obvious one. Covers, another obvious one, right? Blurb writing, questionable one way or the other, because I found that a lot of times I have to explain so much to a blurb writer that I was like, well, I could have done it in half the time. <laughs> like, so that one is just, I self-taught. And the way that I self-taught uh, was that I got BookBub's emails and I, you know, just kept it coming into my, uh, my email folder. And I started taking them out and I'd rip mm-hmm. them apart because a BookBub blurb is one or two sentences and that's it. You know, the whole purpose of that one to two sentences is to get you to go to the page. Now, granted, your blurb might need to be three times, four times as long as a book blurb, but no more. You know, what's its purpose? You ask questions, you give hints, you don't tell, you ask for them to go click and read. Go look at any of the um, Brownstone blurbs. So unbelievable, but Mr. Brownstone, you will see a, con- a consistency there. So, you know, I-, I think that there's some value in just ask questions in your blurb. If you're telling someone something, you better make sure it's it's related to a question or a statement that uh, makes creates curiosity. Absolutely. So those are all of the normal ones. We talk about that all the time about outsourcing that. So the next part, as a publisher, and I think I never definitively stated this, on the scale of one to ten, a one is the author that has the pizza and the Coca Cola thrown underneath the door to them, and all they do <laughs> is type and toss the file back out. To attend, which is a publisher who is doing all of the books and is looking at only the numbers, and they don't care necessarily what the actual story is. I'm more of a seven. You know, I like the publishing side. I enjoy the creative side. I've written personally plenty of books. I've collaborated on hundreds of books. So I like that part, but I really like the publishing side. So a lot of my focus and a lot of my answers are going to come from a publishing mindset so just be aware when i say this right i think that's that's relevant um but because of that and the fact that i grew up with a uh, a mentality of of doing rapid release rapid release requires a lot of product therefore how do i minimize um the time between book one and books that's where i've always been trying to get down the tim Ferriss for you know four hour workweek type of concept and that is understanding what I do best. What am I best at on the IP side? What am I best at on the publishing side? Find the other individuals that work well. Stephen Campbell and I had a conversation one time two, about three years ago, and he's our VP of operations and audio. And I'm just asking him, what is it you like to do? And that answers one of your questions from 10 mm-hmm. minutes ago. 
how do I get people to, I just ask them, <laughs> you know, it, it's not rocket science. I'm like, what do you like to do? What have you done in the past? What did you like about that? What did you not like about that? What really interests you as hobbies? And then from that, I get tidbits and all of a sudden a story concepts will come out of it. An example of something that, you know, could be very similar was I was working with, uh, I'm just going to make sure I got all of his <laughs> name correctly. Okay. Bradford Bates. So Bradford Bates and I were working, this is a few months ago, and I'm doing, you know, this conversation with Bradford and we're going to be, you know, we're working on a lit RPG book. And I'm like, Bradford, tell me a little bit more about your past. And he tells me, you know, he went to university and was a business. I mean, he was really invested in business and that's what he understands and knows. I'm like, you know what? Perfect. We're going to roll that in to our character. He is a business major. And he's going to look at the lit RPG and understand how he can use his business knowledge to become a better player inside the realm. And it, that is an example of how to roll that stuff in. Yesterday, uh, Martha Carr and I were talking with another author, and it just so happens that this is a book that's going to have firearms. The author is female. And she said, something I failed to tell you guys was I was in the army for like six <laughs> years, and I know guns cold. And I'm like, oh, you have just made me a happy boy. <laughs> this is perfect. <laughs> this is exactly because, you know, this is how I would write a Carthurian Gambit book because I had um, Stephen Russell to help me. I was like, Bethany Ann, grab the, quote, insert pistol here, quote, <laughs> and then, you know, blam, blam, blam. And, and then he would put in the appropriate pistol for me. That's my knowledge mm -hmm. of guns. If you're looking for the next best thing to invest in, try investing in your long-term health with Forward. Forward is intelligent medicine with a personal touch. Their doctors are dedicated to catching top killers like cancer and heart disease early, which could save you tens of thousands of dollars in the long run. So invest in a doctor that's invested in you. Visit GoForward.com to learn more about how Forward can help you manage your long-term health risks for one flat monthly fee. That's GoForward.com. The newest vacuum and mop robot from Ecovacs is DBot N8 Plus. It is an all-in-one vacuum with Osmo mopping system that allows for simultaneous vacuuming and mopping and eliminates 99.26% of bacteria on the floor. It cleans more effectively with true mapping technology so you get more coverage and do not miss a repeat spots. Buy DBot N8 Plus at Ecovacs.com now. For a limited time, get 10% discount using code ECOVAX10. So it must be difficult because you'll get people who, I suppose, either forget the things that they do know or they'll have this perception of what they feel that they want to do. And then it's not until they're either in the thick of it or they're, they're literally given that option to go ahead and do it, they suddenly go, actually, that's not where my heart is. Have you had many of those situations? Yes. And I call them passion mm. projects. In the beginning, the first year when I would be helping people, um, you know, more and more often, I finally realized it doesn't matter what my experience told me. If they had a project that was to the heart, don't fight that. Don't, you know, just just let them go as like, hey, it looks like you have this passion project until you find out if this passion project is going to win or lose. There's probably not much I can help you with that you can't already get at 20 books. Because in 20 books, they'll tell you about advertising. They'll tell you about all these other things that mm -hmm. they can do, right? My perspective is going to be you know, different. I'm going to be at a higher level. And if I was trying to understand who they were as a person and how would that fit within the Venn diagram of what's selling, and they have a passion project, the whole conversation is done. You can't fight passion projects, you know? And so I would you know, calmly disengage and say, let me know how that goes I can't help you right now. And that's something I had to learn, that I can't help against that. Most of the time, unfortunately, they would go with their passion project. The passion project would then fail. And now they're open to listening to the next stage. And then I can't bring something to that. Yeah, I was, um, I think I actually remember getting one of those messages from yourself after. Uh, so I think after you appeared on the Story Studio podcast a couple of years ago, which mm -hmm. I'll, I'll link to that episode in the show notes for anyone that wants to listen to Michael two years ago. Um, uh, I reached out to you, you because my mentality, my thing that I've always been taught is if you don't ask, the answer is always no. And I've done that a lot uh, during my own author career. 
and I ended up reaching out to you and asking if you had anything and saying that I was sort of open to collaboration. And obviously at the time, I think you were, it was around the time then the Age of Magic was becoming more of a thing. Mm-hmm. And I think there were hints of potentially an Age of Madness, but nothing sort of mm-hmm. secured. Um, mm-hmm. And at that time, you said to myself, um, um, you asked me which genres I was most passionate about, which is for myself, horror and post-apocalyptic. It's very much a dark fiction. Um, mm-hmm. And at the time, obviously, that wasn't something that you did have going. So we kind of very nicely said what you just said. Obviously, we don't have anything right now, but if anything does pop up and... Um, I think I was one of the lucky ones that did pop up when the Age of Madness came around and we worked together on that. But I think it... And I don't understand you people at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've we've had a quite a fun conversation about the the love of horror and where that comes from and, and, and how fucked up people are. Um <laughs> but... it, it was a fun conversation, but I'm just like I just you know, I recognize it's just not a, a genre. I grok too, right? I think my favorite part of that conversation was it was a Skype conversation. And I got to see your face mm-hmm. and it kind of just looked at me with such confusion. Well, the things that you were talking about, it's like I really under- like to mentally go through this exercise of understanding. <laughs> and I'm like, what is wrong with you? It's, it's a <laughs> then, beautiful genre. It's it's wonderful. I, I can get why people those don't are not like the it. words that should be. Yeah, those are not the words that should be associated with horror. Man, when you, when you pick genre. up a book, when, I'll I'll say this one. I'll shout this one out. Um, I've recently read a book by Jonathan Jans called Wolfland, um, and it's all about uh, basically a group of friends reuniting for a ten year reunion and a werewolf coming and basically just ripping the shit out of people. And I'll be honest, there are several pages in that book where I could literally just reopen it and read again because the. <laughs> the the words were so beautiful the sentences were so fantastic and it just it was oh, it was perfect horror um but i mean if it's not for yourself then and that's fine we've all got we've all got our own genres that we like yeah yeah and and i think that is it's understanding that there as a publisher right i had to take a level, step of maturity and go there are plenty of people who enjoy horror mm. i might not personally enjoy it but I understand how to publish. And if we as a company can then do the right things to start acquiring horror fans, um, we can build something that I can interact with people such as yourself, because you're, you're fine as a normal human being. <laughs> what you write, like, you, know? <laughs> you know, and I might actually want to, he's like, Oh, he knows horror. So I should be totally safe, you know, in a dark alley. Cause he'll know where people are going to like, <laughs> they're going to come out right there. Good. I'm going to push you right there. You know, every event, you know, exactly yeah. you'll you'll know it all and we'll be fine yeah um so we're building up our horror because of you know you're one of the reasons that we're building it up so shame on you i'm sorry you, you love what you love um <laughs> what does your morning routine look like i'm interested in this very much because particularly at the minute i'm i'm trying to find the perfect morning routine for myself i've tried tried a lot of different things from meditation to different times to wake up with to how long that i sleep um and i'm massively curious because when you first started writing in the, the KG series, um, I imagine that your mornings look very much different to how they do now. So what? how do you construct the first hour or two of your morning each day? Do you have a set routine or? Mm-mm. No, it's <laughs> it, um, all apart, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, if, uh, three and a half years ago, I had kids in high school. We were living in Texas. Now, uh, only my wife and I are living in a condo in Las Vegas. Uh, the kids are in high school or off on their own. So the, you know, the family dynamics are a lot, lot, lot different, but what I think you're searching for is how to keep yourself on target. And recently I've been working with another one of our authors and she's been, you know, biohacking herself. Um, and so what I found fascinating with this is she has an even more intense hate of schedules than I do. And I thought I was pretty bad. <laughs> Um, so when people tell me I need to be somewhere at a certain time, it, it grates on my nerves because I don't like the obligation because I'll be there to the best of my ability. I will be there. If I fail, I'm going to feel bad. I don't like that. I like spontaneous things happening. So I've had a really hard time creating any sort of common structure. What she is trying herself is she effectively makes index cards of, of things she needs to accomplish and then she puts on, you know, her day is made up of these cards. I perceive that she puts them in a typical order, but perhaps she reshuffles them. But it doesn't tell her, you must do this at 9.15, because personality-wise, that's just going to drive her nuts. Mm-hmm. And so I'm really watching with fascination as she does this. Other personalities, which would be the direct opposite of mine, strive and crave 
this ability to put time in. So I would have to ask you, which one are you? And where are you on that scale? If, if one is I hate structure and a 10 is I crave structure, where, what's your number? I'm definitely a seven or an eight. I, I like the structure and I know that I work better when I have structure because the habit builds and my body automatically then knows what I need to get into and the, and the mind gets into what I need to get into. My mm-hmm. issue the last few weeks is um, I've recently got a personal trainer who likes to change and chop different times around and trying to find times to fit in going to the gyms and getting the workouts done when the gym's quiet and also around when I have to take my son to childminders um, throws mm-hmm. apart my day. So I find that typically I'll be the most productive if I can have that first half of my day just writing. If there's anything mm-hmm. that chops in even for half an hour, it it really impacts and throws off that, that productivity for the first half of the day. Um, but sometimes appointments pop up that I can't then move. So it's it's a bit of a challenge. But yeah, I think I like the structure, but I also like having that flexibility just in case. But I know that I perform better with the structure. So, I mean, so some ideas within that is constrain how many days can get screwed up for yourself, right? Mm-hmm. So only on Thursdays. Um, fire the existing person or tell them, look, you got to hit this date, right? I can't do it. I'm the one paying. You know, I've had one time I had an artist who refused to work in Slack and I work in Slack and I'm like, okay, we can't work. <laughs> and they got upset going, why can't you, you know, I'm like, you told me email only. I don't work in email. Well, I do. Well, I'm paying. So I'll find someone who works in Slack. <laughs> yeah. And I did. So, I mean, there are some harsh realities to it, but the other one, let's say you love them. They're the only person that's capable of doing it. Then is it worth, you know, how many days are you going to allow it to be screwed up? Or like, look, you changed it. You're going to have to move it to the same time, different day. Um, just setting those priorities within what works best for you. Yeah. Now I'm in the middle of the minute of uh, basically just redrafting my entire mornings and, and playing with a few things to make it as productive as possible. But I mean, it's the challenge of, of you've only got so many hours in the day and before hitting the gym uh, and making that a bit of a priority, because I know that in the long run, it will benefit me uh, the most. It's, it's something you've then got to find that gap in the day for. And sometimes it's not always there, but I'll. Is it similar to um, sprinting with other authors? How do you mean? Well, you know how, you know, a lot of times that, you know, being an author is difficult. And, and so a lot of what indie authors do is they form sprints and then they form sprint groups. Yes. So like, hey, be there at 10 o'clock tomorrow with me. We're going to sprint together. And of course, they're they're writing their own books. It's not like they're sitting there going, well, what do you think about this? No, <laughs> they both say 10 o'clock, go. And mm-hmm. so for 25 minutes, you're sprinting, even though you might have Messenger open or Skype or however they, you know, c- they connect because it's worldwide. And then they get done and they're like, oh, good. Yeah, this is working. You know, five minutes. All right. Meet you back here at 1030, 1030. Yeah. Go. Tell you what you do. All right. So because obviously you do have mm-hmm. the sprint channel in Slack and I dive in and out of that occasionally and put the messages on. You need to get more UK authors, Michael, because it's really difficult doing with the Australians and the Americans. Because <laughs> I get up at <laughs> 5, 530 in the morning. And by that point, everyone's asleep or clocked out or their days are done. So it's just me in that channel going, I'm, I'm sprinting. And then about five <laughs> hours later, someone goes, oh, I'm sprinting now. And I'll be like, I've done my day. I've, I've, I've finished my work. <laughs> so if you can get more UK well, guys, okay. that'd be fantastic. <laughs> well, okay. But I mean, you could also make the call out. So the question I have is sprinting is something that can be done from home mm-hmm. or anywhere. Coffee club. Is what you do with working out something that can be done like sprints? Yeah. Because I don't know why you have a trainer. Is it to understand how uh, to do it correctly? Or is it just someone to sit there and make you do it? <laughs> or like, frack, I paid money. I better go do this. A bit of a bit of the first and a bit of the last. So partly the incentive of having paid a person to help. But also, I know that I've spent many years dipping in and out of um, exercise and kind of putting my toes in the water with nutrition and things like that. And I essentially wanted to just boost the process of having someone go, Here's how you start. Explain to me why we're doing what we're doing, so that I can then take that knowledge and start to do it myself. So it's not a, it's not a forever thing. It's not a probably for mm-hmm. a six months thing. It's probably just a few months thing, just to get me started, get me rolling into the habit of it, um, and just and just kickstarting that and kind of holding me accountable, which has been working well so far. I've still got a bit to learn, I think, um, but 
even just with nutrition plans that they give you and the exercise stuff i think it's it's not only helped my general well-being but it on the days when well the days after i train the days i train i'm absolutely shattered <laughs> but the days after i train i definitely <laughs> do feel sort of a a mental focus um a lot more strongly interesting yeah yeah because you i mean you can see where you could hack that right because if it's once they've explained it to you then you can get either accountability accountability buddy mm -hmm. or frankly you can pay people to do that and it's it's a relatively small amount of money but you're still paying yeah and to have someone call you up going hey are you going to be leaving now i, I am i am i'm leaving you know <laughs> i swear that game <laughs> system you hear in the background is just the music that's the it. <laughs> it's just motivational jams just to get you pumped yes exactly yeah. uh, um so all right so moving away from my fitness let's bring this back um because i'm also quite aware that your time is precious and i've had you for a while um i've got one more question for you then i've got a few fan questions and then we'll go straight into the quick fire round if you're happy with that mm -hmm. cool final question from me uh just to round this up do you have an end game with lmbpn and if so are you willing to share I think the closest that I have to an end game is getting into other forms of entertainment, including we're in audio. We're now um, making connections with Podium and Dreamscape, and we signed a, a well over 50 book deal with Dreamscape. Um, Tantor has taken some of our rights. And so, you know, we've got uh, 200, call it little under 200 books we've done. We've now signed rights for another less close to 100 books. We still have 300 books in our back catalog, and we do 20 to 30 a month. So that is audio. Then you have um, anything related to uh, video. And so, you know, I, I am a, a focus of, regardless of how people take it, minimally viable product, right? So the question is, how do we do video? And the answer is typically at the moment that we're working in game engines and so we recently have done video for the zoo project that we have that's been on track now for well over a year and so we're creating worlds in those engines to understand how to create first advertising and then create small snippets of stories and then finally to actually um the goal is to create you know 22 minute uh things that we can sell to tv if we so want to or you know, Twitch or whatever the case is, but I do want to get into video storytelling. It's an exciting realm. Uh, yes, just really expensive. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Okay, so let's dive into some fan questions. Um, I have a fair few here, and I don't think I'm going to be able to get through them all, so I'll try and pick some of the quicker and uh, the quick ones we can answer. So, um, from Esther Kilgore, what are the most words you've written in one day, and for which book? 19,000, uh, actually a little bit less than, than 20,000. And I want to say it was for um, Love Lost, the third book. I was really desperately trying to finish that one. Nice. Um, are, from Tracy Burns, are there certain events that inspired characters and or setting ideas? Or is it more a case of, oh, hey, I had a cool idea. Let's see where it goes. And then the beats come from there. If you look at um, about book six or seven, you'll notice that there were some French, um, there were some attacks uh in france related to terrorists and this was from the um you remember when the french like was it newspaper or something um the weekly magazine that they were attacked and multiple people were killed yes yeah, yeah, yeah. so that was one of them where we absolutely did it um I, that pissed me off at that time so bad that i you know wrote it as a major plot point in that book nice um Question from Kathleen Fettig. Have you ever hit a wall with a character or storyline and did not know where to take it? How did you get out of it? Um, that's one uh, black um, uh, burnout time that I mentioned earlier was around book, still that six to nine area. And I was running up against a wall and I just, I couldn't figure out what was going on and uh, had asked a person I was working with at the time. And she helped me focus and just answer some questions about it and what i've learned since then because i've encountered the same problem multiple times was i wanted the answer just to come and i wasn't willing to sit there and really ponder it and make sure i had the story in my mind before i tried to, to put the words on the paper i was trying to force it and one time um the way that i do beats is you know spreadsheet where i have what are called mini arcs down the left hand side and and then all the major plot beats going across 
And I had done one and it was massive. And I had like 70 different cells, 70 different scenes. And I'm like, oh, I don't know. where. And then I finally realized I had completely just made up something. It's like a person who knew what the numbers were and I had no creativity. I just said, this is what I got to do. This is what I got to do. And it wasn't, I wasn't feeling the love of these scenes. I didn't want to write them. So I realized I had to go through and rip out two thirds of all of that work because I had no love for it. And rebuild it. And once I had redone the beats and I was excited about writing scenes, or you know, if it happens in the middle of it, I'll just put in a scene that I want to write and then keep going. I've had that recently as well. It's uh it's fun. You really have to find a way to rekindle the passion for what you're actually writing just to keep it going, keep it alive. Yes. Yes. Um, question from Mickey Cocker. Have you bought or stole or fine angled the Mexican Coca-Cola recipe yet? <laughs> <laughs> no, um, but the interesting point is we were, my wife and I were in Cabo San Lucas and we were eating at a place called the office. It's on the beach. And so my wife, Judith, um, <laughs> she was being really, you know, particularly nice to me and she was going to make sure that I got Mexican Coke. And so yeah. when we get, uh, when we get the Coca-Cola and it comes to it and she's like, I I'm sorry, we're, we're asking for the Mexican Coke. Well, here in America, Mexican Coke is, uh, is uh, basically either a three quarters of a liter or a liter bottle and they'll say echo in Mexico. Right. Well, we get this can of Coke and we're like, that's, that's not Mexican Coke. And finally, and the guy goes away and he comes back and he's got it again. And, and we're like, you know, we're getting a little flummoxed here. And he goes, well, I'm not sure what you're asking for. This is Coke. It's made in Mexico. It's Mexican Coke. <laughs> and we're like, we're idiots. We're complete idiots. <laughs> nice. Uh, question from Luke Condor. Um, is there anything that you miss back from when you were a single author business or anything that you're glad to now be rid of? I miss the daily goals being hit. When you're in the beginning, you go from nothing to $10 a day for a book. You're amazed. You go to a your first $100 day. Hmm. You're amazed. You know, um, we're very successful in LMBPN. We do um, we're regularly almost five figures a day or more than five figures a day, um, in the, for the most part. And so, you know, what do you do? I mean, the next step up is go 20,000 a day. I'm like, fuck, that's not easy. <laughs> you know, you're not doing that next week or next month, right? Mm. That's a, uh, maybe we will, but it's not something that you're like a hundred dollars a day, $125 a day. Woohoo. Mm. You know, man. So I, I do miss some of those pieces. The, the challenges that we have are bigger, you know, like, like I um, referred to earlier, how do you eat 50 to a hundred books simultaneously? That's not something you can just do on a Friday. <laughs> yeah, true. No one. <laughs> um, question from Esther Kilgore. Do you have a story in your head that you haven't been able to put on paper yet? You know, that's really, I, um, no, I haven't. Um, we're actually in the process of doing the first passion project, if you will, series, um, that will come out in November. Um, but I feel like what I'm, what I'm waiting for is to get past the main hump of building the company where everything's going well, because I didn't expect to have dozens or even a hundred people respond waiting on me if you will <laughs> not waiting on it like you know like hey what are you going to do next but their income to some amount whether it's 10% or 100% is dependent on LMBPN that changes my daily responsibility and it changes my mindset quite a bit because you know if i go off and mouth off like i used to rant all the time that could affect potentially dozens of people <laughs> that's a weight on my shoulder i didn't want but now I have to accept it. So one of the reasons it's probably I'm not good that I'm not on Facebook is I don't then get, uh, I'm not susceptible to doing that stuff. We miss your legendary rants. <laughs> Just pages and pages on Facebook. So glorious. Uh, <laughs> final question. But that's why. Final fan question. Stephen Porter, if you could go back and start this journey all over again, is there anything you would do differently? I would like to say that I would make sure the quality of those first two or three books were better, but the reality is I you know if if I couldn't if I couldn't change who I was at that time, that would almost tell me that I wouldn't write the books. 
in which case so that's a dead end yeah um but beyond that what would i do differently i don't i mean better covers faster be willing to believe in myself a little earlier um i waited i didn't realize just how long it would take to do model shoots brand new covers so i probably lost two to three months of amazing sales because I had crappy covers that I was doing myself when I could afford not to mm. Fantastic. be that way. Yeah. Uh, okay. Into the quick fire round. Got 10 questions for you. These are going to be super quick ones. So just try and answer them as fast as you can. Um, I'll try and catch you out and get your pin number and we'll see where we go from there. Okay. okay. Indiana Jones or Terminator? Indiana Jones. What book are you currently reading? Um, son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> Never heard of um, that one. It's actually Incu- uh Yeah, yeah, no. It, um, it, it, Incubus Inc. by Darren Arand, I think, which is uh, Randy Darren's or something like that. Anyway, um, th- it's interesting to me because he, he, William D. Arand is his other name. He writes Harem. And one of the things that fascinates me about this is you need to realize that Harem and Reverse Harem are all basically love stories. And in general... What happens is you need uh, a male is um, is into being respected and they need to help. They it, it's almost to a large degree a physiological need to provide. And I am vastly simplifying this <laughs> or oversimplifying this. So in the same thing with a female, right? They have their own personal things of what they need. When you do a harem, you're basically taking eight books worth of emotions and plugging it into one. Mm. <laughs> and so. If you strive to have that, then you get a whole bunch of it in one, and it's a heavy shot. I read very rarely anymore, yeah. but I find it fascinating how he does uh, his books from the standpoint of the relationships. And so that would probably be one that I'd be like, you said it. And I go, son of a bitch. Am I going to have to admit this? <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> but you know public. what? Screw it. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I know. It's, it's, I, I've never met the author. Um, I would find it interesting to talk yeah. to him. How many pets do you have? None. Favorite brand of clothing? Um, uh, Levi jeans and Under Armour. Who was the last writer to make you cry? Oh, wow. To make me cry. I, you know what? It sucks to say this, but effectively me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was, I was rereading which two of the Federation, and there was a scene that was built and everything, and you know, I'm freaking there going, oh, this is so funny. I thought you say those moments where literally the words are in calm and you're just crying at the keyboard. Like, why? My wife laughed at me. I know you're supposed to be a fast <laughs> round, but here's the story. I'm writing the scene where Michael dies. It's like book nine in the Cursarian Gambit. And I, I'm I'm blubbering and everything else. And I go, I walk from, I was writing it in the, the kitchen, the, the breakfast area in, in Texas. And I walked into our bedroom. The master bedroom is on the other side of the house. And my wife takes a look at me and she can probably, you know, she can see that I'm crying. I've red eyes and <laughs> whatever. She's like, what is wrong with you? You know, at first she's got that, what is wrong with you? Kind of like, what's wrong with you, baby? Sort of mm. mentality. And then I, I try to start explaining that I had this scene and I, he was dying. And, and all of a sudden she busts out laughing, laughing. And all she does is she starts acting like she's talking or she's typing in the middle of the air. And she's like, wah, 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 wah. <laughs> And then she's like, just like Snoopy, <laughs> where Snoopy is writing on the typewriter. Wah, wah, wah. She laughs to this day about that. Got to make you feel like a man in that moment. <laughs> oh, I did not. <laughs> uh, what was the last film you laughed at? Um, what's the last film? I'm going to get this wrong because I can't think of the actual films that <laughs> we were in. Um, it was only a few weeks ago. But let's say Endgame for the nice. sake of argument. Do you believe in ghosts? Yes. If you could live anywhere in the world, where would it be? I think I know the answer to this one. Yeah, I mean, Cabo is is where my heart is right now. I um, We went to Bali. Beautiful place. I have found out that the Bali that you see on TV is not nearly as much fun as the Bali that's there because they have, one, humidity out the rear end. <laughs> and two, because there's so much rain and humidity that there's the, the little green kind of slime everywhere. Wow. And I'm like, I can't imagine having a house where I had to deal with cleaning that all the time. They, they, they have <laughs> so, slime on stuff. Well, it's it's that green like um kind of algae moss. Stuff. It's not yes, yes, yeah, yeah. It's the algae and wow. stuff. Because it's so wet there, it's, it's it's all over the place on and so you have to clean it all the time. And I'm like, I don't I don't want to deal with that. <laughs> they have that in the brochures. <laughs> I, I'm I'm too lazy. <laughs> uh finish this lyric. I've got the world on a 
plate. What's your dessert of choice? I'm sorry? What's your dessert of choice? Ooh. Um, churro. Nice. Uh, this is question 11, but it's a bonus one that I thought I'd throw in from Natal Roberts. <laughs> Can you name every series in your backlist in 60 seconds or less? Hell no. <laughs> <laughs> and Natalie, next time I chat with you on Slack, I'm going to harass you. <laughs> question sure, she'll appreciate that. <laughs> uh, okay, so mm-hmm. just to finish up, where can our listeners find out more about you, your work, and LMBPN? LMBPN.com. That's basically London, Madrid, Barcelona, Paris, New York.com. And yes, that is pretty much what those letters <laughs> mean. Um, you can reach us. We have four or five different Facebook groups. If you're on the author side, 20 books to 50 K is the group that I started and I am occasionally in there. Um, other than that, I generally don't visit other places for authoring sides. Uh, not that I wouldn't, but I just don't have the time. <laughs> fantastic. Well, thank you very much for your time and for joining us. It's been fantastic chatting to you again, Michael. Likewise. Thank you. I'm sure we'll speak to you again soon. Thank you to everyone for listening. Thank you for joining me for this week's episode of the Great Writers Share podcast. Next week, we'll be talking to newbie full-time author Alex Seagates, and we have a great conversation about all of his horror books, how he managed to make it to full-time, and what he gets out of going to live author events. So stay around for that. Just a reminder as well that the Patreon is live, and we have people over in the Slack group now, all getting to know each other and chatting away. If you want to get a little bit more from the show, including early access to all episodes, uh, monthly giveaways, and our private community on Slack, then just go to www.patreon.com forward slash great writers share. That's P A T R E O N.com slash great writers share. Until next time. ACAST powers some of the world's best podcasts. Here's a show we recommend. Hi, I'm Jackie Johnson, the beauty talk shock jock, and I host Natch Butte, a podcast that explores the self-care space while laughing, yelling, singing, and keeping things cruelty-free. Oh, yeah. I gab with celebs, makeup artists, female indie brand owners, and fellow funny folks about what beauty and self-care mean to them, as well as what's in their bags. Looking good while doing good, we are voting with our wallets, we are buying cruelty-free products, and we are having a goddamn blast laughing with our pals while we do it. That's Natch Butte. This is the Natch Butte Pod! Welcome, baby. Listen to Natch Butte on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Acast, 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 Acast recommends. recommends.